This is the Big Issues Better pod. Acting today for a better tomorrow. No one ever told me sex shouldn't be painful. In fact, whenever I tried to seek out information, I was it was often reiterated that oh, pain during sex is fine. It was being told that sex was painful that made me develop a sexual pain disorder. Sophia Smith-Gaylor wants us to talk about sex. A multi-award winning reporter, author and TikTok creator based in London, she's investigated the misinformation we're all exposed to about our sexuality. Her book, Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century, is a myth-busting call to arms that champions inclusive and equitable sex. On Better Pod today, she tells us that better sex is not only about pleasure, it's also an opportunity to be smarter and kinder. I'm Laura Kelly, Future Generations Editor at The Big Issue. I lead a team of exciting young journalists from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in the media. My name is Sophie Dmitrievich and I've been part of the Future Generations team here for almost six months now. As part of it, I've learned invaluable skills in becoming a journalist and I've spoken to really interesting people as part of it. Sophie, tell me how you felt after a conversation with Sophia about sex education. Well, I've always been really passionate and interested about teaching the correct sex ed, especially teaching more about women's health, which I feel like has really been neglected as part of it. Talking to Sophia kind of taught me a lot about what needed to be changed and how we shouldn't ignore sexual health problems that are also part of the issue. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for joining Sophie Me on Better Pod. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, why did you want to tackle the subject of sex education? Really, my book goes so much further than sex education. I know that's the subtitle, but it's all about exposing, really, that we live in a sex misinformation crisis and naming it as such. We're quite used to now identifying a COVID-19 misinformation crisis or climate misinformation crisis and that's because these issues suddenly massively engage with the news agenda in a way that we can't avoid it and and we get quite literate quite quickly about how there are bad actors in these spaces and how we could be subjected to inaccuracies without even realizing it and talking about it in a in a sexual health and reproductive health way isn't something we're so familiar with using this vocabulary of mis and disinformation around. So I really wanted to look, I really wanted to chart a journey in which we talk about sex education quite a lot. We talk about um, people having really rubbish sex education and then the conversation often ends there. So what I wanted to do with this book was chart the harms that believing in sex myths and misinformation can cause for people looking and interviewing people who have fallen victim to it and it's really harmed their lives. Also interviewing the people who, technically speaking, profit from these myths existing. In the book, I interview a hymen repair surgeon, for example, and looking at it in this sort of space as an information-starved space. It's not only about it being education-starved, information staff, lots of people, um, not only as children and young adults, but well into their adult lives feel like they are unable to access accurate and engaging information about sexual and reproductive health as as their bodies 
as their bodies change and as, as their lives change. So what is wrong with the sex education most of us has had? A huge problem with sex education curricula across the world is that it focuses on risk mitigation. So this may be don't get pregnant in some places. Uh, It may be don't spread STIs in some places. Increasingly in a world where we are getting better at talking about consent, we're not necessarily getting better at teaching about it. And this risk mitigation may also be don't get assaulted or don't assault. It's actually often don't get assaulted. It's often quite victim blamey and not terribly uh, useful in teaching us about the wide spectrum and realities of consent. But if you only teach people about risk, you're likely fronting education with negativity. You are likely not focusing on what happiness and health looks like you're focusing on what unhappiness and harm looks like I would add to that I think a lot of sex education curricula fail to understand that young people come to these lessons already victims of sex myths they aren't coming as a blank canvas who's never heard about sex in their lives you know we live in a world where uh, popular culture and mass media and everything young people are learning all the time and obviously you'd hope that they learn about everything in an age-appropriate way according to whatever developmental stage that they're at unfortunately with the way that the internet is it's often that you encounter ideas or messaging or phrases at a time when you don't have the information base to to sort of log that information correctly and 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 it might end up engendering inaccurate ideas about sex or harmful ideas around sex and uh, a really good example of this would be when um I experienced this, but in, in the book, there's a there's a lot of research that shows how lots of places experience this. Um, the hymen was never mentioned once once in my sex education because I guess it was pretty relevant to these risk mitigation conversations that wanted to focus on me uh, and a partner using a condom essentially to avoid pregnancy and SEIs. That was a focus. Um, because the hymen was never addressed, this myth that I believed in as an adolescent that it did somehow um, connote something about my sexual activity or history and that it would break when the first time the first time I had sex and that it would bleed and that it would be painful. None of those ideas went challenged. And throughout the book, that's what I really try and highlight in that if you have a vacuum of sex education, these ideas do not get challenged. And not only do does it harm my life, it will go on to harm others. A brilliant example of that is a friend of mine whose mother didn't let her wear tampons because it would damage her hymen. And in that instance, mother has passed on myth to daughter and daughter passed myth on to friend. Uh, and we need to interrupt these misinformation pathways and tell people the truth, which is that virginity is a social construct with no biological reality and especially not in the hymen, which is a very um an insignificant piece of tissue that has been probably one of the most sort of lied about pieces uh, of of the female anatomy. If young people are kind of you know, being failed in schools and maybe not getting what they need from there, and then looking elsewhere, where is it that they start to find that information? I'm speaking here as a 40 year old woman who used to learn about <laughs> it from just 17. So, and so what what is it? What does it look like now? If you think about the diversity of the online world, there are pros and cons here. Um, I hopefully like to identify personally as a pro 
as in someone may because of the my own online presence that I've engendered may uh encounter some of my content that I have made and obviously as a journalist uh, I make every effort to make sure that the information I give is not only accurate but also engaging so that you're likely to hopefully watch the whole video rather than just five seconds of it um, and then you know apart from me we have really fantastic science communicators health communicators doctors who are trying to populate internet spaces that you may go to like social media platforms um, to give information about the body. But obviously, there are cons in that these are the same spaces that you may find one of these surgeons who's going to give you the, the service uh, that you perhaps don't need at all and that will cost you a lot of money and not solve the problem at hand. You, uh, This is also the space where you may encounter quite grim podcasts. I mean, they're all over my For You page at the minute on TikTok, but podcasts in which which are sort of male-only spaces, and they talk about how to how to game women into bed. And sometimes these conversations will will deliberately sort of say, "Don't don't respect women's consent," for example. Um, and there are other studies all in the works that uh, are beginning to further demonstrate how being in certain online spaces means you're probably not encountering reliable information. So I've seen a preprint of a study that has looked at conversations um, on Instagram and TikTok about men's sexual health and how in certain hashtags, uh, barely any physicians are making content. Like it's all just kind of ordinary people making content. And as a result, these have some of the highest levels of misinformation. And so uh, it's, 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 you, you're going to get, two world whirlwind experiences on the internet you may get more accurate information than you've ever had access to in a classroom but you also get access to more inaccurate information that you could possibly dream of so um for me that doesn't mean be terrified of the internet for me that means i need a digital literacy toolkit that empowers me to use the best tool humankind have ever had to 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 save me and to save my friends and to keep me happy and healthy and to keep my friends and my family happy and healthy. Um, so it's 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 a minefield, but it's also fantastic and glorious. <laughs> Coming up, why do so many women associate sex with pain? Did you know you can get the big issues, award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com slash bigpod to find out more. A lot of the time when I talk about sex, it's with my friends. And I guess some of the conversations that we have, we kind of talk about how we struggle with having sex comfortably and kind of talk about the pain associated with sex. And I feel like sometimes in this generation, as women, we're kind of encouraged to have sex to please men rather than ourselves. So just kind of wondering, what are some ways that we can encourage young girls to be more open about their sex life and that really it's kind of normal to enjoy it? That is a myth that needs to be debunked when young people are still in educational settings and you have their attention in a classroom. I was never, no one ever told me sex shouldn't be painful. In fact, whenever I tried to seek out information, I was, it was often reiterated that, 
though pain during sex is fine, that information can be far more nuanced. It can be. So pain during sex is more common than you'd think. About one in 10 British women experience it. But just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal or right. Um, and it's often the case that people will be experiencing pain because they haven't been aroused enough or they might be feeling a bit of anxiety. Um, we're still really rubbish at like bringing mental health conversations into talking about sex and how our mental health that day, uh, our mental health in general affects our sex lives and how um, overlapping with conditions like anxiety and depression will affect our sex life. It will affect how relaxed we may feel in a in a sexual scenario. We need to get better at looking at sexual resilience and how former sexual experiences may make us feel a bit more daunted or um, ambivalent about future sexual scenarios and how we get through that pain. Like you said, it, pain as being this kind of normal thing for women. I remember being horrified by a study that I found during the research for my chapter on consent, in which in, in the consent myth chapter, I explore how consent is being presented to young people as a binary, say yes, say no, when you do and don't want to have sex. And actually the real world, power dynamics, normalized coercion in society does not make that a binary issue. It's this whole complicated continuum and we need to be informed about it so we are empowered to deal with situations as and when they arise um, and protect other people as well as ourselves. And I remember in one of the studies, it was about anal sex between heterosexual couples. And the study found, the study identified that men essentially scored points with each other in masculine spaces by saying that they had had, they had engaged in anal sex um, and that they would often persuade their partner into doing it fully aware it was going to cause them pain so the research didn't find that actually men know nothing about women's experience and they don't realize how painful it is no 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 no. they know they know how painful it may be for the partner um and they will still attempt to coerce in in certain examples for the partner to do it so if we live in a society where where pain and coerced pain is normalized as well as the sort of um, pleasureless sex that may be normalized. So pleasureless sex might not be painful, but it might not be pleasureful. Uh, it might be quite disappointing. Um, and our conversations just need to get way, way more complicated about it. Um, and we need to eradicate this belief from society that pain is normal. It's not that it's normal. It's that it's unfairly common and this is why and this is how we can manage it. It was being told that sex was painful that made me develop a sexual pain disorder. You know, there are many reasons I developed vaginismus, but one of the reasons was certainly that I was told sex is supposed to be painful for women. And it gave me so much anxiety about having sex for the first time that, in fact, the pain I experienced was so many times more than what it needed to be and indeed you know I, I now have completely painless sex and if you aren't having these conversations with people a lot a lot can go wrong a lot can go wrong and really impact our, our well-being and health outside our sex lives. Sorry you mentioned vaginaismus I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that because I know a couple of my friends have also had issues with it as well and I feel like more light should be shone on that so if you could maybe share a bit more if you're willing to. 
So vaginismus is a sexual pain disorder. Uh, that's one of many psychosexual disorders, disorders people can develop. It's about 51% of women and 42% of men, I believe, in the past year in the UK will have had a sexual problem lasting three months or more. So we, we don't nearly talk about, we don't talk about sexual dysfunction nearly as much as we should, given how common they are. Vaginismus is specifically where the pelvic floor spasms and prevents entry, insertion, anything like that, and immense levels of pain are caused. So when I had it, um, it felt like I was being stabbed. And I'm not exaggerating. It literally felt like someone was trying to stab me. And um, this may impact, this may not only impact women's uh, access to having sex, pleasurable sex, it may impact their access to loads of feminine hygiene products. You know, I've still never been able to use a tampon or menstrual cup. I'd really like to be able to use a menstrual cup because I know that they're good for the planet and I've tried to affect changes in my life to, you know, better look after the planet. Um, I've also had it impact my access to cervical smears. It's made my life harder far beyond my sex life, basically. And it's made, um, there was a point when I had it and my GP didn't know what it was, um, gave me completely incorrect treatment for it, uh, did not immediately refer me to psychosexual services, which is probably what he should have done. Um, and I, I just remember thinking like, I'm, I'm not built right down there. Like I have like a... I ha there's something really wrong with me. I'm never going to be able to have children. I'm never going to have a relationship because no one will want me because I can't have sex. Um, my mental health was at, the, at one of the lowest points it has ever been during my entire life. And, and where healthcare could have stepped in and said, oh, you have this. Don't worry, it's treatable. We'll get there. Instead of having that, I just got sex is supposed to be painful sphere and, and messaging like that. So um, vaginismus is... A, like most psychosexual disorders, especially those affecting women, we're very under-researched. Psychosexual services across the UK are very strained. Waiting lists are incredibly long. Um, and this isn't a problem where you can kind of be medicated with a pill and get over it. This is a problem. This is a condition where people, generally speaking, will need psychosexual therapy. This is a mind-body issue. It's not just a physical issue. It's a mind-body issue that demands mind-body treatment. So if people could take away just one thing from your book, what would you like it to be? A lot of the messaging around prioritising sex in your life may feel like you have to relentlessly orgasm. You know, a lot of it is sort of relentlessly sex positive in that way. And what I am saying is sex is, you need to prioritise sex in your life, but you need to prioritise it as a part of your mental and physical well-being. It needs to have a space in your life where, where you are happy with it. Now, for everyone out there, that looks very different. For some people, that might mean sex isn't for me. I'm not having it in my life and I am perfectly happy without it. For other people, it's, oh, yes, um, sex has a place in my life, but it's trauma-informed. It, it understands that I went through this experience and um, that every time I have sex, um, it's going to keep me in, in recovery from said experience, for example. For me... I've been on such like a ridiculous journey with with my personal experience because I've had this disorder and I've kind of got through it by myself. Um, it wasn't really down to treatment. And so for me, even also having written a book like the one that I have, um, I am encouraged every time I have sex to be very sensitive 
to both my own body and the bodies of, of other people and especially um, in terms of my experience as a heterosexual woman is about being far better educated about what men may experience during sex, men's experience of se- sexual dysfunction and challenging gender stereotypes that, that hurt men's sex lives. Like, for example, the pressure to be virile, the pressure to sort of be sexually prolific. Um, make make prioritising sex, sex information and education in my life has hopefully made me the kind of partner that would not leave someone else with like an issue or a hang up, you know. And I think we all like to think of ourselves as good friends good good sons good daughters you know good children good employees for me it's about sort of thinking of ourselves as better as better partners not in the way society tells us it's not all about how good you are in bed actually it's also about um how, how we treat each other and towards the end of the book I say every time that we have sex we are given an opportunity to be kinder and smarter and what else in life can we say gives us that whilst also being like incredibly fun? Uh, mm-hmm. Not much. So <laughs> that's a, a lighter, a lighter way. That's a lighter way for me to sort of really sum up all of this when there's so much bad stuff, bad research, bad treatment, nasty things that have happened to people. How do we get past that? Well, if sex is an opportunity to be kinder and smarter, that's how we get past it. Every week in our podcast, we finish by asking our guests three questions to help our listeners act today for a better tomorrow. So I'm going to hand over to Sophie to ask you our last three questions. What's one bit of advice you wish you'd known earlier? I wish I had known. This sounds quite basic, but to put my own health and happiness first. Because really, in putting your own health and happiness first, you should also, that should also mean putting the health and happiness first of the people you're around too. And if it doesn't mean that, something's up. What's one piece of art that gives you hope for the future? Leslie Nope's character in Parks and Rec. I think uh, more of us, (laughs) more of us, I mean... It's really funny because I am like a complete art nerd uh, in terms of I'm obsessed with opera. I have been to a lot of like the world's major art galleries. I know about art. But right now I don't want to talk to you about some like boring old piece of music or boring old painting in terms of giving ourselves a vision of of how to act and a, a, a view of lightness on the world, I think. Uh, the way that Leslie Nope's character was written uh, and, and the way the, the ecosystem around her in the office that she works in, um, that is something that uh, when I think of her, I lighten up and I think of, gosh, imagine if we all brought that energy to our lives. What's one thing our listeners could do today to make tomorrow better? Ooh, I have a challenge you do not need to do this on TikTok. You might prefer Instagram. You might prefer YouTube. All I say is pick a pick a video platform. Pick, 
build up the courage to tell the world today about an issue that you think not enough people are talking about that's a fantastic challenge thank you so much for that i look forward to seeing and if anyone wants to share that with the hashtag better pod then we will keep an eye on them and um yeah and hopefully we can boost some of those signals as well thanks for listening to better pod if you'd like to support us please subscribe leave a review and tell your friends We're relying on word of mouth to bring people into our conversation and to help us all discover how we can act today for a better tomorrow. You can keep up with all the Big Issues reporting at bigissue.com where you can also discover how to find your local vendor.